We're here tonight to discuss a very important topic, and that is the myth of the lost cause. Now, I'll give you a couple examples of the myth in action, and then go on, explain what the details are of the myth, what the components are of the myth, and also then we'll take a look at each one. The myth of the lost cause was created by ex-Confederates, mediocre General Jubal Early, totally incompetent General William Nelson Pendleton, and Reverend William Jones between 1860 and 1900 to basically justify the Civil War. What had happened was the North fought the war, the North won the war, Northerners went back home and resumed their daily lives and really didn't care much about writing about the war until maybe a hundred years after the war. Southerners, on the other hand, had a lot to write about. They had a lot to justify. What had happened was the, almost the entire war was fought in the South, and the South was just an economic basket case by the end of the war because Northern armies had gone through and destroyed pretty much anything of economic value. In addition, you have to realize that the South's major institution, social institution, that is slavery, had suddenly come to an end, and there were between three and a half and four million slaves with big questions about what happens to these African Americans. And so uh, Southerners felt compelled to explain why it was that this devastation had occurred, and that, for example, 25% uh, of Southern white men between the ages of 20 and 45 were dead. Not just casualties, they were dead as a result of the Civil War. So there was a lot of explaining to do, and that's the, the origin of the myth of those first 30 years, but it has continued. Uh, and probably the best example are the seven volumes by Douglas Southall Freeman in the 1930s and 1940s, first of all explaining in the first four volumes uh, called R.E. Lee, that Lee walked on water, and then in the next three volumes basically explaining any faults that Lee might, have, might appear to have had by blaming all his subordinates. That's called Lee's lieutenants, which could have been called Lee's scapegoats. And that was a continuation of the myth of the lost cause. The reason I felt compelled to write the book was, as I went around the country talking to members of Civil War roundtables, I found that a lot of people who, in my view, should have known better, were greatly affected and bought into very many aspects of the myth of the lost cause. So that's why I think it's important for all of us to consider what the myth is and how much we want to buy uh, into that myth. A good example uh, of what I'm talking about, sort of a little change of position that occurred among Southern leaders was on the threshold of the Civil War, as seven Southern states were seceding before Lincoln even took office, Jefferson Davis, a senator from Mississippi, gave a very emotional farewell address to the United States Senate in which he said, sayonara. And in that address, he explained that he felt compelled to leave and that his state felt compelled to leave the Union because the institution of slavery was being threatened by the federal government and by northern states. So that was his discussion in 1860-61. I believe that was December 1860. Two decades later in 1881, uh, Jefferson Davis published his uh, two-volume memoirs. And in that work, 
Jefferson Davis adopts the traditional myth of the lost cause position and says, well, slavery really had almost nothing to do with the war. In fact, he states specifically, there would have been a civil war even if no American had owned a slave. Okay, he just, I won't comment on uh, which one I think is the truth or the fiction, but just note the contrast between the two, and this is very typical, and it's why it is so important to go back and look at the evidence at the time of secession and the time of the formation of the Confederacy. Now, uh, as I said, a lot of people have bought into this over the years, and I think it greatly affected the historiography of the Civil War, whether you were born north, south, east, or west, you absorbed some or all of the myth. And that's why it's important to understand what that myth is and to examine uh, how valid you think it is based upon the evidence. Now, this is a quote from John Keegan. Now, John Keegan was an internationally recognized military historian, wrote about 20 military history books, and he lived in England. He, to be honest, he did not understand the Civil War that well. He wrote a book on it eventually, and it was not a very good book. But in one of his other books on intelligence in war, he just made a general statement sort of off the cuff, and this is where historians run into trouble, and, and I, do, I do it myself all the time. You, you try to make a general statement about something which is tangential to what you're really writing about and what you really know about. And Keegan said, the Southern people were resolute in their determination to preserve states' rights, the legal issue over which they had declared separation. So he bought into what I consider to be the myth uh, that states' rights was what the secession and the formation of the Confederacy were all about. So let's now springboard off of that and let me tell you what I see as the major components of the myth. The first one I've just stated, and I think that's an absolutely critical one, slavery was not the primary cause, states' rights was the primary cause of the Civil War. The myth goes on that slavery was a benign institution beneficial to whites and blacks alike. But then all of a sudden it jumps into, the myth jumps into something that sounds a little inconsistent with what I've just said, and it says, by the way, the Civil War was unnecessary because slavery was going to expire on its own within a fairly reasonable period of time. Further, the argument goes the South never had a chance to win the war, and one would ask, well, if that's so, then why did you start the war? And thus the South did the best it could with the resources that it had, and part of this then is that Robert E. Lee was the great military leader and that he was one of the greatest generals who ever lived. And you will find a lot of the books that take the lost cause position, they talk about Lee literally in Christ-like terms, talking about Golgotha and Gethsemane and blessing the children, etc., etc. He truly is a mini-god of the myth of the lost cause. Now, there were a couple problems with that. One is that he clearly lost a really big battle at Gettysburg. So what to do about that? Well, that became fairly easy to deal with. James Longstreet was made the scapegoat for Lee's losing Gettysburg. And one reason for that is because he, he had the gall, Longstreet had the gall to actually take uh, a position in the Grant administration as a collector of 
tariffs in New Orleans. So he, he went over to the Republican side, and that was just a death to a political career in the South and made him a sitting target to become the scapegoat of Gettysburg. Now also, of course, Lee ultimately surrendered to Grant, and so you had an issue of if Lee's so great, why did he lose to Grant? So that myth goes, Grant won only by being a butcher. That Grant was a butcher, and that he only won by brute force. And finally, sort of the newest spin on the myth of the lost cause is that Union forces only won by engaging in total war. Total war. So that's a phrase that's really, I, th I think, being bandied about fairly loosely these days, and we will take a brief look at that. Okay, we will start out with what was the nature of slavery in 1861. I don't really think we need to deal very long with the issue of was slavery beneficial to whites and blacks. Certainly certain whites benefited from it. And keep in mind, when I say slavery tonight in shorthand, I will be referring to slavery slash white supremacy. And one reason I do that is because if you were in the South, and even if you did not personally or somebody in your family did not personally own a slave, you were still the social beneficiary of the existence of slavery, and that can simply be explained by saying that no matter how poor a dirt farmer you were and how little you owned, you always knew that in your society there were four million people who were inferior to you as a matter of law and of social practice. So that said, let's look at slavery itself. And the reason I say we don't need to spend much time is basically we have a long history of rapes and murders of slaves. We have, we have the beatings. We have the scars on the back. We have massive movements of slaves from the northern tier of southern states, from Maryland and Virginia primarily, down to the deep south. The best estimate is that about one million slaves were sold out of the northern south out of the border states or the northern southern states into the deep south, about one million slaves. And if you take that million and, and adjust and then actually increase for the number of transactions that did not involve such long distance transfers, I think it is a fair estimate that probably about a million slaves over the 200 plus years of slavery were separated from their families. In other words, children taken from parents, wives taken from husbands, etc. There was no thought really given to trying to keep the families together except in rare instances. All I'm saying is a very common practice to split the families. I put that in quotes because you have to keep in mind that part of the devastating effect of slavery was that slave marriages were not recognized. Slaves had first names, they didn't have last names. Again, marriage not recognized, and children were the property of the mother's owner, and as far as the owner was concerned, it was his economic decision as to what to do uh, with those slaves, whether to hold them, whether to sell them, etc. So there was a devastating impact on the African-American family because they were really legally kept from forming family groups as we know them. Okay, I don't think I need to say too much more about uh, justifying slavery, uh, except just to remind you that one reason this comes up is because uh, of approaches to the South, the, I'll call it the mint julep approach, as reflected in the movie and the novel Gone with the Wind. So just take a look at things 
with a big shaker full of salt. Okay, now as I said, there was something that seems to me a little bit inconsistent in the, in the myth, which is that despite this wonderful benevolent institution, it was going to come to an end within a reasonable period of time, we'll say defined loosely maybe as before 1900, because it was no longer really beneficial economically to the owners and the reason this argument is made is because then it can be argued the Civil War was unnecessary. Civil War was unnecessary. Northerners didn't have to fight the war because slavery was going to disappear anyway. If you look at the records, you will see that the value of slaves throughout the states that became the Confederacy were on the rise in 1860. They had reached the highest point they had ever reached. Uh, cotton sales were way up. The value of cotton had continued to increase. But also keep in mind that slaves were not only used to raise cotton, slaves were used for uh, tobacco, for rice, uh, indigo. They, they were used for a lot of crops, a lot of farm production. But also by this time, a lot of owners had recognized that you know, some slaves, despite the fact that, that they were put down as a group, some slaves had real talents as artisans, uh, blacksmiths, carpenters, etc. So they were, being, they were being leased out. And in addition, as the South was starting to get industrialized, very early stages, slaves were being used in industrial arenas. Uh, so for example, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, the tobacco plants, you know, you're talking about creating, creating uh, cigars or cigarettes. Uh, uh, slaves were almost the exclusive labor to run all the tobacco factories. M even more interesting, again in Richmond, you had the Tredegar Iron Works, which was uh, a key industrial force in the Civil War, making virtually all the Confederate artillery, armory. Uh, uh, they were the, the iron works for the Confederacy, was the Tredegar Iron, iron Works, and that was almost exclusively manned by black slaves. So um, there, uh, the Southerners were beginning to figure out, from an economic perspective, boy, there are a lot of other uses to which we can put slaves. Now, part of the argument that slavery was going to go away is also that uh, the South had run out of land that could be developed for agriculture. I think the simple rebuttal to that is that uh, between 1865 and 1925, the amount of land dedicated to agriculture in the South tripled. It tripled. So more recent studies really show that the land was there to be developed for agriculture. It's just that economically it wasn't being done at the time. Um, also, in terms of slavery disappearing, the estimate of the Southerners themselves in their secession resolutions was that they were defending an institution which had assets in slaves of four to six billion dollars. That was in the dollars of those days. That would be hundreds of billions of dollars now. In fact, if you categorized assets in the United States, that was the biggest single category uh, the most valuable single category of assets in the United States uh, was the value of slaves. So I personally see no indication that slavery was about to go away. Now we get to the $64,000 question, and that is, 
what caused secession and what caused the formation of the Confederacy. Now, I say that once you had a number of states seceding, like starting with seven, eventually going to 11, but we'll start with the seven. Seven deep south states seceded between Lincoln's election in November 1860 and his inauguration in March of 1861. Uh, the seven deep south states uh, seceded, and they immediately began seizing all the Union forts, armories, etc., weapons scattered throughout the South. Uh, the only ones that escaped seizure were Fort Pickens, Fort Pickens at Pensacola, and Fort Sumter at Charleston. Other than that, the South was already seizing these weapons. They were actually, the states were buying weapons in Europe. They were preparing for war. And ultimately, a deliberate decision was made personally by Jefferson Davis, authorizing um, PGT Beauregard to bombard Fort Sumter to start the war. Uh, and given the reasons for uh, the South seceding and forming the Confederacy, it should not be a surprise that once those things were in place, there was, there was going to be a war. And as, as we'll see, there were a lot of people who were trying to avoid a war by dealing with the issue of slavery. The first thing I want to do is look at contemporary evidence, 1860, 1861. I think that's the only or the most valid way to determine the cause of secession and the formation of the Confederacy, which is relevant today. A lot of people display or wave the Confederate battle flag. And my question is basically, when they're doing that, what does that flag stand for? Seems to me that's the Confederate flag. Stands for the Confederacy. What did the Confederacy stand for? And we as a society ought to look into that issue and draw our own conclusions about why, why the Confederacy. Why the Confederacy. Now, to me, anything that occurred, uh, anything that is said uh, after about the middle of 1864, when it was pretty clear the South was going down to tubes, Anything from that date to the present is second-guessing. It's looking back, and it's imposing one's own personal views on the situation. God forbid that I would want to impose any of my personal views on any of this. Uh, but my point is that I'm trying to focus on what actually happened in 1860 and 61 and look at that contemporaneous evidence. I think that is our most valid evidence of why there was a confederacy. Okay, there are a couple points I want to make from these statistics which I put together from a couple of different sources. The first thing is only slave states seceded from the Union. There were about 16 free states, 15 slave states. The only states that ever seceded were all slave states. That might tell you something that there was more than just states' rights at issue. Now. Among the group of slave states, among the 15, there are three categories. The first category are the early seceders, uh, the seven states that went out before Lincoln even was president. And then you have four more who went out uh, after Fort Sumter, did not want to take up arms against their, their fellow southern states, and had a great deal of interest in preserving slavery as well. And then you had four other slave states specifically Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, which are known as the border states. Those slave states never seceded. So let's look at this data and see if there's a correlation between what I'll just 
I'll summarize initially as the blackness of a state and how likely it was to secede uh, and when it was likely to secede. In the first group of, of seven that went out early, the 47% of the population was slaves. 47% of the total population was slaves. And, and here's the number that may shock some of you, 37% of the families in those states owned slaves. Now I say it may shock you because uh, the promulgators of the lost cause like to say things like, did you know that only 1% of Americans owned slaves in 1860, so slaves could not have, slavery could not have been a cause of the war? Well, that of course includes everybody north and south and man, woman, woman and children. There's another related rationale, which is that, do you know that only about oh, 5% of southerners owned slaves? 5% of southerners owned slaves. So therefore, the war could not have been about slavery. But what that does is it says, if you have a family and you have a father who owns X number of slaves and he's married to his wife and he's got eight kids, that's really 10 people who benefit from having one or more slaves in the family. And so I think it is rational to look at how many families directly own slaves. And this doesn't even get us into what goes beyond that, which is the whole social structure and how uh, uh, we'll call them lower class whites felt about having four million people by law subservient to them. 37% of the families in the, in the first seceding states um, own slaves. Now the second batch, uh, is the ones after Fort Sumter, we had 29%, 29% of the population was slaves and 25% of the families owned slaves. And then finally in the four border states, only 14% of the population consisted of slaves and only 16% of the families owned slaves. So just on a demographic basis, it appears to me that there is a significant relationship between slave population and family ownership of slaves and the willingness to leave the Union and the earlier the better in cases where the, those numbers were higher. Okay, enough about that the best evidence, the best evidence of why there was a confederacy is, as you would expect, in the words of the seceders themselves. In the words of the seceders themselves. And, um, and, and that is mind-boggling because you can study the documents that were issued by the states uh, about why they seceded uh, and you, you don't find mention of the word tariff which is uh, a red herring that's often thrown out there. And actually, you don't see states' rights either. What you see is a long list of slavery-related issues. Uh, of the seven uh, first seceding states, six of them left clear statements about why they were seceding. Actual documents in their secession resolutions or companion documents saying, here's why we did this. And only Louisiana was silent, but we have other ways of looking at, at Louisiana as well. But we're right now we're just exploring, here's what people said about why they were seceding, why they were forming a confederacy. First of all, the first one out, of course, South Carolina. 
And so they issued a declaration of the immediate causes for seceding from the Union, and their complaints were northern states and federal government failure to return fugitive slaves in accordance with the Constitution and federal law. Quote, but an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to, the, to a disregard of their obligations and the laws of the general government have ceased to effect the objects of the Constitution. Uh, South Carolina complained northern states had condemned slavery as sinful. Northerners had elected as president a man who had said government cannot endure permanently half slave, half free. Uh, they even criticized the fact that some northern states had the audacity to allow free blacks to vote. So my conclusion on South Carolina is far from respecting uh, other states' rights to do pass liberty laws, for example, or uh, extend certain freedoms or rights to African Americans, South Carolinians were opposed to these states being able to choose themselves what they would do or not do. But in addition, we have them complaining that the federal government is not doing enough. The federal government is not, in their view, aggressively enforcing the, the fugitive slave provisions of the Constitution and of federal law. Now, you should be aware that, believe it or not, the U.S. Constitution, as originally adopted, had a specific provision that required runaway slaves to be returned back to the states from which they had fled. This is not just a matter of federal law. Uh, and then about 1792, Congress put that in law. And as you well know, in 1850, uh, that statute was strengthened quite a bit. But this is typical. The Southern complaint and fugitive slavery is a big, big source of aggravation and complaint by the Southern states that the federal government is not doing enough. Uh, doesn't sound like they're really concerned primarily with states' rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. They want the federal government to do what they want the federal government to do, which is to preserve slavery. Now, Mississippi was right in there behind South Carolina, and their governor urged the convening of a secession convention, and he said, the existence or the abolition of African slavery in the southern states is now up for a final settlement. The legislature called for a secession convention, and they had a long list of grievances. So this is now the Mississippi legislature convening a secession convention. They complained that the North had defied the Constitution's fugitive slave provision, interfered with slavery, enticed slaves to free, agitated against slavery, sought to exclude slavery from the territories, and opposed the admission of more slave states. Moreover, abolitionists sought to amend the Constitution to prohibit slavery and to punish slaveholders. They had encouraged John Brown's raid and had elected an president and vice president who were hostile to the South and its system of labor. Uh, and so the legislature left no doubt why they were convening a secession uh, convention, and the convention basically used the same kind of language and, and obviously seceded very quickly. The convention said, uh, in their declaration of the causes of secession, they said this, our position is thoroughly identified with 
the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. It, its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world and a blow at slavery is a blow at civilization and commerce. That blow has long been aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left to us but submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the union whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. Now, that's not some summary by me. That's verbatim what the Mississippi Secession Convention said. And they, they had a long list of grievances they got into then, 16 slavery-related grievances. Which brings us around to the point being in all this, I just wanted to give you a couple examples. The point being, in all of these documents in which the states explained why they were seceding and why they were forming a confederacy, there's one word that runs through it all, and the word is slavery. Slavery, 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 slavery. Uh, and, and really, no other reasons given. And most of these documents are readily available. You can Google them. You can find them in the official records of the Civil War, uh, a Civil War encyclopedia called Heidler and Heidler. So these are around. If you want to just check up on me, be my guest, because I think reading these things will be an eye-opening experience. Okay. Now, simultaneous with secession, you had other things that were occurring, which tells us a lot about why there was secession. First of all, there were settlement efforts being made to try to avoid war. I mean, the country was not stupid. The whole election of 1860, the four-way presidential election uh, in which Lincoln emerged the winner, was all about one issue. And that issue was extension of slavery into the territories or not with the candidates having different positions on that issue, but it was that issue which people were voting on almost exclusively. That was, that was the issue. And so when Lincoln comes in, he gets elected on the basis of no slavery into the territories, uh, that sets off the fire bells in the South, and they are very, very concerned uh, about that issue. As I said, people were not dumb. And there was a great realization that all this could lead to war. And so there were certain leaders in the federal government uh, and in some of the states who wanted to try to avoid war. And so if we take a little look at what kinds of compromises they wanted to work out to avoid war, we get some real good contemporaneous insight into what was, what was in people's minds, what was thought to be the cause of secession, and if we could deal with certain issues, how could we avoid a civil war? Well, the first major development was in December of 1860 and January of 1861, when the Senate and the House uh, put together a massive committee, 33 members, one from each state, and they came up with proposed constitutional amendments. Now, these are generally called the Crittenden Amendments, uh, after John Crittenden of Kentucky, who was the leader in this compromise effort. Obviously, he comes from a slavery state, but 
that state actually never did secede. So Crittenden was making a good faith effort to try to avoid war, as were most of the other people who put this package together. But the key point is, what was the focus of the package? What were the compromises? What were the constitutional amendments that were recommended uh, in the same months when South Carolina seceded and then other states started to follow suit? Well, here are what the Crittenden amendments would have done to the Constitution. Extend the Missouri Compromise slave free line to the Pacific Ocean. Recognize and protect slavery in existing slave states and all present and future territories. And then prohibit Congress from interfering with the interstate trade, from abolishing slavery in DC unless uh, certain conditions were met, freeing the slaves of federal officials brought to DC. That's when congressmen showed up with their own slaves. They didn't want them to become free by virtue of showing up in the district. Um, prohibiting or interfering in interstate transport of slaves. These are all things that Congress would be prohibited by the Constitution from, from doing. And then here is the beauty, here is my favorite, is Congress would be prohibited from passing any future constitutional amendments allowing any of the above or authorizing congressional uh, interference with or abolishment of slavery. Okay, so in other words, we not only are going to address uh, this variety of slave issues, all in accordance with the wishes of the seceding states, but we are also going to say in the Constitution, and by the way, this can never be changed. This can never be changed. Now, for our purposes, the, the point again is that every one of these points dealt with slavery. They're all addressing slavery issues. No, there's nothing in here about tariffs, and there's nothing in here about states' rights. It is about slavery. And by the way, this, the Crittenden Amendments went nowhere. Uh, they were considered in Congress. Uh, Lincoln sent word to the Republican leadership, which now controlled the Congress, especially since Southern Democrats were bailing out, which made it easier, that they were not to go along with any amendments along these lines because Doing so would be totally inconsistent with why the Republican Party was formed in 1854, with the principles the Republican Party stand, stood for, and with the election results of 1860 when the plurality of Americans voted not to extend slavery into the territories by supporting the Republicans. So Lincoln just felt this would be a total sellout of everything that he and his party stood for, so he passed the word no, and so that, that guaranteed that these amendments were going nowhere. But again, for our purposes, the important thing to note is that major effort made to avoid war by addressing what issues? Slavery issues. Okay, continuing that trend, the next month in February of 1861, there was a, a major peace conference in Washington, D.C., and fortuitously, there's a brand new book out on that called The Peace That Almost Was. The Peace That Almost Was by Mark Tooley, T-O-O-L-E-Y. And uh, it's an excellent book. I think there's a disconnect between the publisher's title and the contents of the book, which I've experienced myself, because I think it, the title is overly optimistic. The Peace That Almost Was. Be 
because it, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, and what happened is that seven states were already out. So the remaining slave states pretty much came, they all came, and most of the northern states came to this month-long conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, and at that conference, ah, lo and behold, what did they do? They developed proposed constitutional amendments to avoid war. That was what they were all about. So what did this set of constitutional amendments say? It said, reinstate the Missouri Compromise boundaries between free and slave territories, require a majority of slave state senators to approve new territories, prohibit Congress from interfering with existing slavery, affirming the fugitive slave laws, ban the importation of slaves, and require unanimous approval. There's my favorite on this collection. Require unanimous approval by the states to revoke any of these constitutional amendments. So in other words, these are going to be locked in forever as well. So uh, obviously, one month after the Crittenden amendments were shot down, the peace conference recommendations were also going nowhere at all. In, in fact, uh, it's kind of ironic, ex-president John Tyler of Virginia, which had not yet seceded, uh, chaired, uh, chaired the uh, conference. Ex-president, big name, uh, and um, uh, so he was a big pusher to try to get uh, pro-slavery constitutional amendments as part of their agenda. He got what he wanted. He stated on the final day of the conference that it was now his obligation to present these to Congress to try to see about getting them passed. So he basically sent them pro forma to the Senate, never sent them to the House, and the next day he showed up in Richmond uh, as a member of the Virginia Secession Convention and, and, uh, and attacked and attacked all the proposals as, as ridiculous. So, but again, those are all very interesting, but again, the point is, trying to avoid war, this group came up with, and these are political leaders now from the states, not, not from Congress, political leaders from the states, uh, came up with their proposals, and they were virtually identical to the Crittenden ones, and what they shared in common was that uh, they all dealt with slavery. We now also can take a look at Southern leaders' statements early in the war, or even be before the war, as to what this was all about. Uh, as I said before, Davis had made his statement in his farewell address to, uh, uh, to Congress when he, when he went home, and uh, his vice president, Alexander Stevens of Georgia, uh, gave us a real helping hand in trying to understand what was going on. Uh, he delivered in Savannah, Georgia, in about February of 1861, uh, an address which is called the Cornerstone Address. And it's called the Cornerstone Address because in his talk, uh, Stevens said, the cornerstone of the Confederacy is slavery. The cornerstone of the Confederacy is slavery. Now, quite frankly, I had known that from general reading before, but when I pulled this entire speech out and read it through, and it's widely available too. Um, I was astounded to the extent that Stevens went into detail. And what he did was he said, you know, the founding fathers 
Thomas Jefferson and those other guys made a very serious mistake because they said that all men are created equal. Well, we know that in the Confederacy, the Confederate stands for the principle that all white men are created equal and black men are here to serve us. Uh, and he was very specific about this. Now, immediately after the Civil War, he started the usual backing down, uh, and his back down excuse was that he was misquoted. <laughs> this is long one, of mis one of the longest misquotes in world history, uh, and the problem for him is that not only did the Savannah paper carry the story about this speech in Savannah, the Atlanta papers carried the same story about a speech he gave in Atlanta in which he made the same points. So, um, uh, the Confederate leaders contemporaneously with secession and the formation of the Confederacy told us what their views were at that time. And so now we've got Stevens bailing out. I told you before that, that Davis bailed out later and said there would have been a war even if nobody owned any slaves at all. So that's why I say that if we're really looking at why the Confederacy, you've got to go back to the beginning and look at it contemporaneously and forget about everyone else's rationales later. And I don't care what side the rationale is on, just that's nice to know, but it's pretty much irrelevant. Let's go back to primary original evidence. Okay, the Confederacy's Constitution adopted at the same time. Um, um, I'm thinking very early April 1861, uh, six states, and then Texas came in, so actually that would, they would have started doing this in, uh, in February, and then uh, they adopted a preliminary one and then a final one. Okay, if you look at the Confederate Constitution, you would think that would tell you something about why is there a Confederacy? And what, what the uh, uh, Confederate leaders did in the Constitution was pretty much copy the U.S. Constitution, except, as expected, they built in a lot of extra protections for slavery and pretty much said you couldn't tamper with those down the road. But perhaps because I'm a lawyer, uh, I focused on one provision in the Confederate Constitution, which I think tells us a lot. And that is that there's a supremacy clause in the, federal in the Confederate Constitution very similar to the federal one, to the U.S. Constitution. Supremacy Clause says the supreme law in the Confederacy is this Constitution, Confederate treaties, Confederate law. And it says state judges are bound by the, that supreme law regardless of what state law says. Hmm, okay. It sounds to me like the southern states had switched masters, uh, and, and not that each state was going to stand alone and be its, and, and be its own government, but they were, they were basically looking for a more compatible and understanding uh, superior government and not doing this purely on the principle of states' rights, because that one clause basically throws states' rights out the window and puts the, puts the power in the Confederacy, just as the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, in general, puts the power in the United States government when push comes to shove and there's any conflict over the issues.
So, the motivation of the four later seceding states is again pretty much documented as being slavery related. The leaders talked about it, the, uh, their secession conventions talked about it, and it's, very, it's almost like a replay of the earlier seceding states, but things have now reached a crisis stage because they were seceding in time of warfare. Um, and a lot of them simply did not, they did not want to take up arms against their sister states and they wanted to defend slavery. In fact, the four border states almost went too. And that was one of Lincoln's big concerns uh, throughout the war. Okay, I've given you a lot of evidence contemporaneous with formation of the Confederacy about what the Confederacy was about. Now, I want to go beyond that and look at the Confederate government's behavior during the Civil War, which would shed additional light on their purpose. And what I submit to you as my personal view is that the behavior of the Confederacy in several key areas demonstrates that the Confederate leaders were more concerned about preserving slavery than they were, unbelievably, than in winning the war, than in winning the war and preserving their independence, that it was all about slavery. Um, and so what, what are the kinds of things I'm talking about? Well, the first is a fairly controversial area, the rejection of using slaves as soldiers. Now, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard that there were some slaves fighting for the South. Uh, I mean, look, just in 2010, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, well known for the accuracy of its school textbooks, uh, <laughs> published a book that said 2,000 blacks fought under the command of Stonewall Jackson. And so when challenged on it, the department person who had come up with this addition to the text said, oh, that was on the internet. That's it. So, that's, I mean, it sounds like a good source. Could have at least said it was Wikipedia. But now, now it, was on the, it was on the internet. So that was, that was the source of that. Um, and now I, I will be the first to admit that there were probably several thousand blacks who went with their masters to war because the masters weren't used to uh, pressing their clothes, doing their laundry, uh, and all those wonderful little things that slaves can do. And so a lot of officers in the Confederacy took one slave with them to the battlefield. And there certainly would have been instances where the master gets killed or wounded, and a slave picks up a gun and fires it, or takes care of the master, gets the master home, or the master's body home. And, and so, the, uh, there would be an appearance of slave participation. And in addition, there's no doubt that tens of thousands of slaves were used as slaves to build fortifications uh, and to do mundane things which are part of military life, but which do not include uh, actually engaging in combat. Now, another, another favorite example of those who say that slaves participated, or blacks at least participated, uh, on behalf of the Confederacy uh, is the Louisiana Guards. The Louisiana Guards. That was a unit of about 2,000 uh, mixed race people. Louisiana already was a great blending place, blending of the races. And so there were people 
there who were free and had mixed blood, so a lot of people would characterize them as black, even though they were a very mixed race. Um, and they signed up at the beginning of the war. They said, okay, we have a company, it's called the Louisiana Guards, and, and we want to fight with our neighbors. We want to do whatever our neighbors want to do. Uh, this may very well have been to preserve their status in society, whatever. We don't know. Uh, the reasons probably differed from man to man. But what's interesting, and so the argument goes, well, my God, here you had 2,000 blacks lining themselves up with the Confederacy. But what happened to them? What happened to them is they were not part of the Confederate Army. They were part of the Louisiana militia. They were never provided with arms by either the federal government or the state government. And that uh, by early 1862, the Louisiana legislature figured out that this really didn't look too good. And so they changed the law and said, to be in the Louisiana militia, you must be all white. So, so I think that example turns out to um, um, turn back on itself and to demonstrate once again that the South had a great deal of reluctance to use black soldiers. Now, let's get to what's really pretty clear, and that is that until five weeks before Appomattox, the Confederate government never officially uh, allowed the use of slaves. So that, that tells us something right there, that this was an issue raised periodically throughout the war, and that until March of 1865, it, this practice was not authorized. Even then, it had strings on it. And so what that tells us is 1861, 1862, 1863, 1864, and more than two months into 1865, the Confederate Congress did not authorize slaves to be used in the Confederate Army. Uh, and, and so it, it's hard to argue that, that, well, the Confederacy did this and thousands fought for them, etc., when, as a matter of fact, the law prohibited it in the Confederacy. Now, uh, further evidence of, of what we're talking about here is that on January the 2nd, 1864, Patrick Claiborne, Irish-born, which might have had something to do with it, didn't maybe buy into all the social mores of the South. Um, Patrick Claiborne, one of the best, maybe the best Confederate generals, um, saw what was going on concerning manpower. The Confederacy started the war outnumbered three and a half to one in white men of fighting age. Three and a half to one, they were, they were outnumbered. And so they had a desperate need for manpower. And uh, despite that, they had not moved toward using their slaves. Well, by the end of 1863, this is following Gettysburg and uh, uh, Chickamauga, Chattanooga, and many other bloodbaths. Uh, the Confederacy was really down to the bottom. They were now uh, not only recruiting, but drafting uh, boys and men from age 15 to 45, and still didn't have enough manpower. So Claiborne, frankly, spoke up, and he produced an issue paper, a well-thought-out issue paper on the subject, in which he said, President Davis has done all he could to drum up a voluntarily or involuntarily support from the whites all over the South. Uh, we've gone out and dragged people kicking and screaming out of the Appalachians to fight for the Confederacy, uh, but uh, we still 
don't have nearly enough, and we are going to be beaten unless we find a way to address the manpower issue. So in his, in his issue paper then, he recommended that slaves be utilized as Confederate soldiers and that consistent with historical use of slaves in warfare, that slaves who fought would at the end of the war, together with their families, be freed. So this is a lot to swallow for a lot of people. This was basically saying, uh, use blacks uh, as Confederate soldiers, and by the way, you should emancipate a large number of them. Uh, now, he first of all got about 13 of his own generals within his, within his uh, large division to sign off on this. They thought, they thought it was a pretty good idea, at least they weren't going to disagree with the boss. So he went in with this paper signed by himself and 13 others, presented it to Joseph Johnston, who was the commander uh, in the Tennessee, Georgia area at the time. Uh, this was before the Atlanta campaign started, early 64. And um, he presented this proposal and he argued for it. And uh, Johnston had called a general meeting in response to a request from Claiborne. And so Johnston had all of his other division commanders and deputy commanders and just a whole slew of military leaders um, uh, in the, quote, Western theater attending this meeting. And Johnston remained silent after the presentation was made. And one person spoke up in support of Claiborne's proposal, and that was his former law partner out of Arkansas, uh, General Hinman. And Hinman actually himself had written an anonymous letter to a newspaper a month or two before pushing for the same idea. But other than that, everybody else opposed it. They not only opposed it, they violently opposed it. And uh, they said, among other things, and, and this, this came up again and again on the question of using blacks as soldiers, they said, look, we are fighting this war over the issue of slavery. Our contention is that slaves are not capable of being soldiers. If we admit that they are soldiers or if they are successful of being soldiers, we undermine the whole argument that supports the rationale for slavery. So we cannot do this. And uh, Johnston sat on the proposal. Uh, Claiborne had wanted him to send it to Richmond. Uh, one of the other generals at the meeting, who violently opposed it, snuck a copy to President Davis, directly to President Davis. And Davis saw it and exploded. Uh, and so Davis, along with uh, his Secretary of War, John Seddon, and his chief military advisor, Braxton Bragg, who had been promoted under the double Peter principle to Davis's, uh, to Davis's uh, military advisor at that point, the three of them started using words like treason, take names, keep a list, uh, watch these men, da-da-da-da. And Davis finally had the Secretary of War send the word back to Johnston. Destroy all copies of the proposal, and no one shall ever discuss this again. Uh, and he almost succeeded in destroying the records because um, the only copy that ever appeared was found 20 years later when Confederate records were being assembled to produce the official records of the War of Rebellion. Uh, and uh, there it was. And so that's in the official records if you choose to read Claiborne's very thoughtful and thought-provoking proposal, which at that time got nowhere.
one clear effect it had is it stopped his career advancement because <laughs> over the next 10 months uh, before he was killed in General Hood's suicidal attack at Franklin, Tennessee in November of that year, uh, there were three times that Corps commander positions became open uh, in, in that army, uh, the Army of Tennessee, and, uh, and that meant also that there were three possibilities to be promoted from two stars to three stars. Claiborne got nothing, even though he has a brilliant record in the war. Um, so his, his idea was rejected. Now, ironically, about the same time that he was killed, all of a sudden, Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee come around because they're at the top of the pyramid and they see what's going on on a nationwide basis, which is that 1863 was bad, but 1864 is even worse from a Confederate manpower perspective because of the tremendous losses the Confederacy suffered in Grant's overland campaign in Virginia, although they suffered numerically less than Grant did, the percentage of casualties was higher and they were irreplaceable. And at the same time, uh, Sherman had had a very successful campaign in Georgia and by this time had captured Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so the Confederates continued to take heavy casualties. Their manpower situation was now something that could not be ignored. So Davis and Lee then began an effort to convince the Confederate Congress that they should authorize the use of black soldiers, uh, specifically free slaves and uh, use them as soldiers and then emancipate them and maybe their families as well. So uh, November, December of 1864 uh, and then on into early 1865, they continued to make this push. But if you want evidence about what the Confederacy was all about, what you have to do is look at the politician statements, the, the congressman's statements, the senator's statements, the public statements, uh, and the press, the southern press. And again, we have this rejection of the concept because it's inconsistent with what we are fighting for. And if we did this, uh, it would just undercut our whole rationale for slavery. So because of the strong opposition, the proposal got nowhere until finally about March the 8th or 9th of, uh, of 1865, one month before Appomattox, the Confederate Senate by nine to eight and the Confederate House by a very narrow vote finally approved using some black slaves as soldiers in the Confederate Army. But there were a couple catches. There were at least three catches. One was, um, the master, the master of the slave had to agree. Number two, the state from which the slave came had to agree. And number three, there was no emancipation promised as part of the deal. <laughs> so that is what passed. That is what passed. And uh, basically, it became something of a fiasco. There were about 200 black corpsmen taken out of Richmond hospitals organized into two companies. And they were paraded and drilled in Richmond. In fact, they performed the manual at arms. They weren't given any arms, but they performed the manual at arms. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they never played any role in any fighting uh, 
uh, in, the, in the waning days of the Confederacy as Richmond fell and then Appomattox Courthouse followed shortly thereafter. So despite the fact that it absolutely had to have more manpower in order to win the war, the Confederacy consistently rejected that approach until the last desperate hour. And by the way, the defenders of the lost cause will always throw this out and say, well, you know, the Confederate Congress authorized the use of slaves. Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, they did. One month before the war was over, and, and, uh, and they did it in such a manner that nothing ever came of it. Now, other things the Confederacy did during the Civil War, which give you an indication of how important slavery was vis-a-vis uh, -vis winning the war. Prisoner war exchange. Again, we get back to manpower, critical need for the South. So uh, they benefited greatly the first half of the war because the North engaged with them in prisoner of war exchanges. They were essentially one for one. Now, you might have some, some refined rules like one, uh, one colonel equals 10 privates and that kind of thing. But you essentially had one for one trade-offs between the Confederacy and the Union for the first half of the war. Ah, but then along comes the Emancipation Proclamation and Northern recruitment and training and use of black soldiers beginning in mid-1863. So uh, what happened there is that uh, black soldiers who were on the losing side uh, were often shot down as they tried to surrender. And if they were lucky enough to survive, they were treated as slaves, as property, as assets, and not as prisoners of war. And the South, specifically Davis and Lee, refused to exchange them. So Grant and Lincoln said, well, that's too bad then, because we're going to stop prisoner of war exchanges. And so the exchanges were stopped uh, until almost the end of the war, until Davis and Lee changed their view. But for a critical year and a half of the war, when the South needed every man it could get, it refused to trade prisoners with the North solely, uh, well, it refused to trade blacks, and the North then reciprocated by not trading at all. Now, you would have to say that it's pretty clear that Lincoln and Grant weren't acting uh, uh, solely uh, out, of, uh, out of consideration uh, for the captured blacks. Let's be honest. They also knew that the fallout would be that the Confederacy was no longer benefiting from these prisoner of war exchanges. But I think it's a, it's a classic example of slavery uh, driving the issue, and even though uh, the actions taken on slavery were inconsistent with what the Confederates needed to win the war. And the final area I'd point to is uh, international diplomacy. Uh, suffice it to say that the South was very reluctant to guarantee England, in particular, and also France uh, and the Pope, that they would uh, that they would end slavery and make sure that the sla international slave trade was completely stopped. And if you want some real good insight into that, there's a book that came out probably about two years ago called "Our Man in Charleston," "Our Man in Charleston" by Christopher Dickey, D-I-C-K-E-Y. And the British consul in Charleston, South Carolina, was there from about 1854 to 1864. And obviously, he was a white man. And so uh, the white aristocracy made certain assumptions about his political views, 
obviously being pro-slavery, etc., and so they were way too frank with him for their own good, so he kept feeding all this information to Britain and made it clear during the Civil War itself that don't trust them, they, they are not going to back off uh, of slavery, and, and obviously Britain was not going to intervene on the side of a state that was actively promoting slavery. So once again, they acted at their, uh, they acted at their pearl. Um, okay, there's, I have one other book to mention to you, and, and, and that triggered one other issue. So if I may retreat for just a second and say that one other piece of evidence about, con this is contemporaneous evidence about why secession occurred, was that as the first seven states went out, five of those states appointed 51 delegates to go to other slave states. No, not, nowhere other than slave states, but they went to other slave states to try to convince them to leave the Union and to join the Confederacy. And I don't need to tell you what the arguments were because they were all the same arguments I've already told you about all night. Uh, but what I, wanna, I, I do want to tell you that if you want to look into that, there's a small book uh, a few years old called Apostles of Disunion. Apostles of Disunion, a very clever title by Charles Dew, D-E-W, and it talks about these missionaries for the Southern cause talking to the other states, and every argument they made was slavery-related, every argument they made. So that, that takes care of the three books that I wanted to make sure that I, that I mentioned. Okay, moving on. Did the South have a chance to win the war? The myth says, uh, no, the South never had a chance to win the Civil War. Um, and um, I would beg to differ. Uh, at the beginning of the war, Southern leaders were pretty much unanimous in thinking they would win. Uh, there was a great precedent called the American Revolution in which uh, the, the outgunned, uh, uh, less powerful party won. Now, in the revolution, the colonists ended up doing things very intelligently. Uh, Washington took a few punches in the nose before he realized he had to do this, but he avoided major conflicts uh, and, uh, and, and acted very defensively and frustrated the British, and ultimately the British population gave up on the war. Uh, and in addition, the colonists played their cards correctly internationally and got the kind of European assistance that the Confederacy did not get. Now, at that early stage of the war then, you had military experts, for example, the London Times military correspondent, you had southern leaders almost unanimously, because of course, uh, one Confederate soldier was the, the equivalent of three northern soldiers. Uh, and, and so there was a great belief that the Confederacy would win the war. Now, there are some very sound reasons for thinking that that was likely to happen. Because after the second batch of southern states seceded, you had 11 states forming this massive land area, about two-thirds the size of Western Europe, uh, which had to be conquered by the North. All the South needed was a tie or a stalemate, but the North needed an affirmative victory. And the South, however, ended up not being satisfied with a tie or stalemate, whether it didn't seem dramatic enough, uh, whether uh, Lee's personal convictions about what was the right thing to do. The South 
uh, under Lee in particular, went on the attack, on the aggressive, both strategically and tactically. Strategically, we have the Gettysburg and Antietam campaigns uh, into the north, and uh, again and again, and I'll, I'll talk about a few of these when I talk about Lee in a few minutes, but uh, the south did not play its cards well at all, uh, and uh, there were all kinds of reasons why it should have stayed on the defensive strategically and tactically, uh, and it, it did not do so. Uh, and, and there's no reason to believe the South could not have won the war militarily on that basis alone. Huge area, difficult to conquer, and um, especially with the weapons developments that, uh, that had occurred uh, between the Mexican War and the Civil War. So I was saying that the South could militarily have won the war. In addition, there's a whole separate line of thought that I've developed over time, which I think has some validity to it. And that is that the South had an excellent chance of winning the war politically. And this is not ex post facto rationale. In 1863 and 1864, uh, the correspondence, the diaries uh, of Confederate leaders indicate they were looking forward to the election of 1864. They recognized how important that election was because Abraham Lincoln was the steel backbone of the Civil War. His election had really brought it about by bringing the slavery issue to the fore, and Lincoln was the steel backbone. Uh, the press and the Congress, they went hither and thither, but Lincoln was solid. And the Confederates realized this, and so they were looking forward to this and said, if we can defeat Lincoln in 1864, uh, we'll get a lot of what we want. And uh, especially as it turned out, because George McClellan was running against him, and George wanted nothing to do with ending slavery whatsoever. Uh, and George was also willing to have some kind of a, uh, a truce, a pause, a ceasefire, uh, to talk things over. Well, I think once that happened, that's pretty much the end of it. So, how could the election have gone in favor of McClellan? The first thing is that superficially, we've always heard the election of 1864 was a landslide, that uh, it was 55% to 45%, and electoral votes were something like 212 to 21. So it sounds like McClellan had no prayer. But if you dig into the numbers, there were, there were 4 million voters, 4 million voters. And if less than 1%, if something like 29,000 of those voters had changed their votes in selected northern states, McClellan wins by one electoral vote. There were a lot of close states, and, and it would not have taken much of a shift. So we're talking less than 1% voter shift would have given the election to McClellan, which I, found astound I find astounding in light of the fact that in the 10 weeks leading up to the election, all kinds of military developments had gone in favor of the Union. You had the fall of Mobile Harbor. You had the fall of Atlanta. You had Phil Sheridan cleaning out the Shenandoah Valley. And so there should have been no reason to give up on the war, no reason to do anything other than support Lincoln, and let's bring this thing to an end based on what positive developments were going on. But despite all that, as I said, the election was very, very close, a lot closer than is commonly understood. So it was not at all inevitable that the North would win or that the South would lose. 
You have to examine very deeply the possibilities of, of uh, Southern victory. And part of this ties into Robert E. Lee. Now we'll move into Lee. Lee was, according to the legend, one of the greatest generals who ever lived. And as I said before, he was made the mini-god of the myth of the lost cause. Um, several years ago, my late father-in-law and I, after reading a whole slew of books on the Civil War, came to the uh, startling conclusion that, you know, each one of these authors had had something negative to say about Lee, but always apologized for it. You know, it was uncharacteristically Lee did that. Out of character, Lee did, did this other thing. And, and, uh, uh, and the authors were not uh, all pointing to the same thing. They were pointing to a variety of issues. And so at that point I said uh, to my uh, father-in-law, I said, you know, I'm going to write a book on how Robert E. Lee lost the Civil War. And that, that was my book number one. I lived in Virginia at the time. I now live in Pennsylvania. Uh, and anyway, um, so I have, I have some criticisms of Lee's generalship. First of all, uh, Lee was a Virginian first and a Confederate second. No big surprise there. Before the Civil War, a lot of people identified themselves with their states, and no one ever said the United States is. They said the United States are. But in the case of Virginians, and in Lee in particular, he was, he was really uh, into almost a religious faith in his state. Wherever Virginia went, he was going to go. And, uh, and actually, when he declined command of all federal armies at the beginning of the war, uh, he said, I will lift my sword only in defense of, not the Confederacy, the Old Dominion. And, and so from the beginning, he was very open, above board, and people had to realize this guy's interested in Virginia and maybe in not much else. And that is the way it, it, it played out. My favorite example of this is that in 1862, Lee, on his own, without approval from anybody in Richmond, shortly after Second Manassas, decided to cross the Potomac and invade Pennsylvania. Now, he got bogged down in Maryland in what's known as the Maryland or the Antietam Campaign. Um, and when he wrote to Davis, he said, by the way, we're crossing the Potomac going to enemy territory. I think it's a long shot, but it's worth it. Uh, and gave him some political advice. I think this will have a great impact on Europe if we can have a big victory. Uh, Lee said in the letter to Davis, by the way, since I am leaving Richmond uncovered by taking his whole army uh, into enemy territory, he said, I recommend that you bring Braxton Bragg and his troops in from Tennessee to protect Richmond. At the time that Lee made this recommendation, Braxton Bragg in East Tennessee was outnumbered three to one by Union opponents. Uh, and and uh, so, which leads me to, to conclude, uh, and not just that, but I will generally conclude that Lee either did not know or did not care what was going on uh, in uh, any theater outside of his own precious Virginia theater. Um, the only time that reinforcements went from Lee's army elsewhere uh, was when Longstreet was finally allowed to go down to Chickamauga. Lee delayed that movement by three weeks. During those three weeks, uh, Union soldiers captured Knoxville, Tennessee, blocking the easy and simple route to get down to the Chattanooga area. 
uh, and that forced Longstreet, who started three weeks late, to take an eight to ten day trip using eight to ten small railroads to get through the Carolinas and Georgia to get to the Chickamauga battlefield. At the Chickamauga battlefield, Longstreet showed up in the middle of a two-day battle, had roughly one half of his troops, had none of his artillery, had none of his horses and mules, so he went in with one arm tied behind his back. Now, due to, due to some federal incompetence and some good luck for the Confederates, uh, Longstreet was in a strong position to pretty much destroy Rosecrans's army. But you may recall that George Thomas became known as the Rock of Chickamauga by defending the high ground, Horseshoe Ridge, Snodgrass Hills, got a couple names, um, for the whole afternoon and into the evening before he made an orderly retreat to join the rest of Rosecrans's fleeing army back in Chattanooga. And, and, and uh, uh, I think the outcome could have been quite different had Longstreet had his complete force including all of his artillery uh, insofar as trying to blast Thomas off the high ground at Chickamauga. But it gets worse. Within two days after Longstreet was finally, Lee was ordered by Davis, uh, very unusual, Lee was ordered by Davis to send Longstreet down. Two days after Longstreet started moving, uh, Lee wrote to Davis and said, among many other things, uh, he said, um, uh, I've got an idea about Longstreet. After he gets down there and he fights the major battle that is obviously in the offing, what should be done with Longstreet, he should be moved from the Chattanooga area up to northeastern Tennessee to Knoxville where he can chase out the Union forces that are there and then, and this is Lee, and then he can come quickly back to my army. The only army that really counted, the army in northern Virginia. And this, this may sound like a, uh, uh, almost like a joke, a funny little proposal, an aside, whatever, but this had fatal consequences. Because what happened is, after the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, the Confederates on scene got into a huge finger-pointing contest with basically Bragg pointing the finger at all subordinates and all his subordinates pointing the finger at Bragg as to who let Rosecrans's army escape at Chickamauga. Why are they ensconced back in Chattanooga? And so they were blaming each other, and Davis went personally down to try to settle the dispute. And he settled it in typical uh, uh, Davisian fashion, <clears throat> in which Davis, you have to recall, either loved you or hated you, and Bragg was one of his buddies. So in what must have been one of the most intriguing conferences of the war, Bragg's subordinates sat there in the presence of Bragg and all recommended that Bragg be removed from command. All subordinates telling the, 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 the president to remove this commander. And what happens? Davis basically sustained Bragg in his position and removed most of the subordinates. <laughs> now one little problem was that Longstreet was sort of a subordinate on loan. And there's little doubt that Longstreet went out to that theater with the idea of, you know, Bragg screws up, maybe I can get that command and have my own independent command and not just be working for Bobby Lee. Um, and, so, and so after Chickamauga, Longstreet realized, and, and, and what Davis did, Longstreet realized, well, there goes that plan. And then on the other hand, Bragg knew what Longstreet had tried to do, that he had stirred up 
this dissent among the, among the subordinates, and it didn't need much stirring up, but, but Longstreet did stir it up. So Davis then thinks, hmm, you know, I had this wonderful suggestion from Robert E. Lee about what to do, and that is to send Longstreet off to, off to Knoxville and, and leave Bragg with the rest of his army in the Chattanooga area. So he suggests that to both Bragg and the Longstreet, so for separate reasons, they both agree. So Longstreet is sent away with 15,000 troops up to Knoxville. This is when the Confederates semi-encircled Chattanooga. And the Union realized the critical importance of Chattanooga as a gateway to Atlanta and also uh, a defensive area uh, protecting against the Confederate invasion into the heart of, of uh, the northern midland, into the Midwest. Uh, and so the Union, at the same time, number one, they brought in Grant and said, we want you to take care of this. We want you to save the army that's trapped there, get rid of the Confederates who are in that area. Uh, and um, uh, they sent around two corps, two entire corps, 20,000 troops went by rail from the Virginia Theater through the Midwest all the way down to Alabama and then into, uh, into uh, Chattanooga. Uh, in addition, Sherman was marched from the Mississippi Valley all the way across the length of Tennessee to get in the fray as well. So wh what happens on a numbers basis is that while the Union is building its forces in Chattanooga, to 75 to 80,000 troops, Lee's wonderful suggestion has resulted in the Confederates going from 50,000 to 35,000. So Confederates were spread thin, they had no reserve, and so when you had the miracle breakthrough at uh, Missionary Ridge, Confederates had no reserve, their line starts being rolled up from the middle, and the entire army flees back into Georgia setting the stage for Sherman's Atlanta campaign uh, of the next year. Uh, so this is, this is a good example of the kinds of impacts that Lee had on other theaters other than, other than the Virginia theater. So that's number one, Virginian first and a Confederate second. The other, the other major problem with Lee is given everything, given all the relevant circumstances, he was way, way too aggressive way too offensive. He fought as though he, as though he were a union general with unlimited resources and the strategic necessity to go on the attack. But as I as explained before, my theory is that the South only needed the tie or stalemate, and they needed simply to make it very difficult for the Union to uh, capture Southern armies, to capture Southern territory, and to repel the Union attacks, at least to the extent of making it so bloody that the northern morale would decline, northern people would give up on the war. And believe me, that came very close to happening uh, in, in the middle of 1864. But um, instead of doing that, Lee, for whatever reasons, went on the strategic offensive, the Antietam campaign, and the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, between the two of those, he lost about 75, took about 75,000 casualties. Uh, and uh, in addition, within Virginia alone, tactically, uh, the Seven Days Battle, the first major battle after Lee took command of, of his army, uh, was a, a one-week series of attacks by Lee 
on McClellan's army. And Lee did achieve a strategic success by driving McClellan away from Richmond. In fact, McClellan started fleeing the instant Lee started attacking. Uh, and the point here, though, is that Lee had achieved his strategic goal of moving McClellan, getting McClellan's army in retreat away from Richmond. The end of one day, and by the end of two days, Lee knew from reports from Jeb Stuart that this was the case. But he kept attacking for the rest of the week. And so in that campaign, Lee took 20,000 casualties to McClellan's 16,000. And McClellan's casualties were soft. They included a lot of missing. Uh, Lee's casualties were hard casualties, killed and wounded. 20,000 pretty much all killed and wounded. That was not a good start. It was not an auspicious beginning because the South could not afford to fight the war in that way. Now, one you may not have heard of is the back end of the Battle of Chancellorsville. Lee was on the offensive against fortified Union positions and took very heavy losses there. And then the one that you definitely know about is Gettysburg, where on days two and three, uh, Lee essentially did nothing but assault strong federal positions on high ground uh, against Longstreet's advice and, uh, and, and took just a severe, severe beating. So again and again, again and again during the war, the record is replete with strategic and tactical aggressive behavior by Lee, which was inappropriate for the South because of the fact that the North had the burden of winning the war uh, and that the South, so badly outnumbered, could not afford to squander its manpower. In addition, one other factor is this. The weaponry had changed significantly since the Mexican War, and so during the course of the Civil War, you're talking about widespread use of rifles instead of muskets, uh, you're talking about rifled artillery, talking about breech loaders instead of muzzle loaders, uh, use of the mini ball, form of bullet, if you will, uh, which was much more accurate, and then as the war progressed even, even further, uh, the use of repeaters. What did all these things do? They moved the power from the offensive, which it had been in the Mexican War, to the defensive. The defense had the power in the Civil War. You did not want to attack unless you had to. Lee did not have to, but he did. Uh, and uh, uh, some demonstration of my point is that about 80% of the battles of the Civil War, uh, in about 80%, the tactical winner was the defender. Just could not be budged from where the defender was. So you really did not want to attack unless you had to, and Lee attacked again and again. So those are some of my reasons for, uh, some of my reasons for uh, Lee not being the great general that we've heard of. Now, uh, one second on Longstreet, he's blamed for Gettysburg, scapegoat. Um, uh, here's the bottom line on that. On Lee's birthday, there are big celebrations. They started the year after he died. So 1871 and 1872, on Lee's birthday, Famous speeches were given uh, on the first one by Jubal Early, the second one by William Nelson Pendleton. And they created the story out of whole cloth. And they said that Lee had ordered Longstreet to attack the enemy at dawn on day two of the three-day Gettysburg battle. Uh, suffice it to say, it was a total lie, uh, had nothing to support it. That's been well proven over time, although it took 
about 100 years for people to seriously look into it and come to the conclusion that that was not so at all. And so what we think now is that Lee ordered Longstreet to attack at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, that he gave Longstreet until noon, because Longstreet stalled troops coming up the road, which tells you that it's unlikely that Lee would have ordered an attack at dawn, especially since Lee only sent out his scouting parties at dawn. So the whole thing was a lie, but it was to tar the reputation of James Longstreet and to take Lee off the hook. Now, Lee committed a slew of errors at Gettysburg, uh, the highlights being, number one, uh, on, at the end of day one, when the Union armies were in retreat through the town of Gettysburg, back toward the high ground, total disarray, Lee came on scene, gave the worst order of the Civil War to General Richard Ewell, in which he told that Second Corps commander, he said, take the high ground if practicable, if practicable. Now, had Jackson been alive, he had, he had died two months before and had commanded that corps, uh, every effort would have been made to capture it. There's an ongoing debate about whether if the Confederates had done it, would they or would they not have captured the high ground. The only thing I'll say is that that was the best chance that Lee had to capture the high ground the entire time he was at Gettysburg, and he basically did not take it. He gave a weak general, a weak order, and so nothing, nothing came of it. Um, okay, so that's, that's the Longstreet story in a nutshell. Uh, there's, oh, and, and also I need to point out that, that Lee then, on days two and three at Gettysburg, launched a continuous a series of attacks on the high ground, and he never did so uh, at the same time. There was never a uh, contemporaneous attack on all the Union forces. What he did was he had Longstreet attack on the south, and within an hour after that attack peters out, finally 24 hours late, Richard Ewell attacks on the north, and that attack peters out, the next day Pickett goes up the middle. So you have south, north, middle, and essentially oversimplified, but uh, two-thirds of Lee's army watched the other one-third carrying out these attacks. It was an abominable uh, campaign, and uh, military historians are in pretty much unanimous agreement about it was Lee's worst, and it was devastatingly bad. Um, okay, that moves us on to Ulysses Grant. Uh, Grant was called a butcher, and it was said that he only won through brute force. Uh, we don't have time to go through his brilliant Vicksburg campaign in which he was outnumbered in the theater in enemy territory, won five battles in 18 days because he didn't just use brute force, he used deception, he used speed, he used concentration of force. He was outnumbered in the theater until he began the siege of Vicksburg when he won these five battles. Uh, uh, yet, he, by, by fooling the enemy, each of the five battles, Grant had more than the enemy did because the enemy didn't know where he was. They didn't know where they should be. So it was an absolutely brilliant campaign. And again, again, Grant, Grant has a record during the war. He captured Forts Henry and Donaldson at, in February 1862, first major Union victory. He captured Vicksburg arguably the most important campaign of the Civil War. He then was brought in, saved Chattanooga within a month, rescued a, a Union Army trapped there, was so well regarded as a result of all this that he was promoted to General-in-Chief and three stars and, and, uh, uh, and asked to win the war, 
which he did within 11 months. So I think the record is pretty clear about Grant's success. Now, let me deal one minute with the, the casualty statistics. We're comparing Grant and Lee, not just against each other, but against all their foes in the course of the war. Here's my favorite synopsis. Grant commanded five armies and three theaters, was a winner everywhere that he went, and did all that he did, including capturing three enemy armies, uh, at a cost of 154,000 casualties, while he imposed 181,000 casualties on the enemy. Casualties are killed, wounded, missing, and captured. Not just killed. Killed, wounded, missing, and captured. Grant did all that he did in three theaters with a total of 154,000 casualties. Lee, on the other hand, commanded one army in one theater, which he lost and did so at the cost of 209,000 casualties, 55,000 casualties more than Grant. So you can understand, with, on, based on that analysis anyway, where I really have to say we've been sold something of a bill of goods uh, about how great Lee was and about how bad Grant was. And quite frankly, the majority of Civil War historians now believe that Grant was the greatest general of the Civil War, even if the general public does not. That's where the real damage has occurred, is the general public has been saturated with this story for 150 years plus, and has bought into a lot of it. So I regard the myth of the lost cause as um, the most successful propaganda campaign in American history. And uh, so I leave you to be the final judges on that, and thank you for listening to my biased opinions.